0: Okay, church, we are back in the book of Nahum today, chapter 2. Uh, just by way of quick review, in okay, case so there are some who were not here last week. Uh, chapter 1 we looked at last week. And really, he just set the, the foundation for the rest of the book in chapter 1. If you guys remember, we looked at verses 1-8. through eight. Really, Nahum just was dealing with the attribute some of the attributes of God. Really uh, telling all of those who would hear, whether it be the nation of Judah, whom God would comfort with these words, or those in Nineveh, the king and those who would hear in Nineveh. He really gave he, he just gave a really strong description of who God is, that he is a jealous God up there in the first couple of verses that he is an avenging God, that he is a wrathful God, that he is a powerful God. We saw how he, he has power over all of his creation, but that also that he was a patient God. He is a patient God. Amen? He's patient, he's a good God. And so we looked at that. Verses 9 through 12 in chapter 1 really just talked about the certain destruction of Nineveh. That it was going to be a certain thing. If you guys remember, in the book of Jonah, God had mercy upon Nineveh. Really just showing what a compassionate God He was. But their time had run out. Their time had run out. They as a nation had fallen back into their wicked ways. And Nahum just made that certain in some of these latter verses in chapter 1. That they destruction was certain and that it was going to be complete. Remember? A complete destruction. And that it was very easy for the Lord. Nations rise up against God, but we know that it, it, it's no effort at all from our Lord to judge the wicked nations and to bring those who are high and lifted up in their own estimation, prideful, and God humbles them. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And then lastly we looked at the last the last couple of verses we saw the Lord's sovereignty in these judgments right that he was using Assyria to judge his people and at a given point in time God then turns around and judges Assyria for being so violent and cruel and idolaters so he raises up a nation to judge a nation, and then he'll turn around and judge that nation that he used as his servant. Because God is sovereign. And so we, we looked at that, and we'll be talking about that more today. And so if you haven't listened to that, you can go back and listen to chapter 1. It will just help with, um, with the next couple chapters. And, and, and really, we're gonna, he's going to get in more detail in chapters 2 and 3. More of a description of the actual overthrow and judgment of, of Nineveh. So let's look at chapter 2, guys. I will read chapter 2 in Nahum, and then pray, and we will get started. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road. Strengthen your back. Summon all your strength, for the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The shields of His mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet, the chariots are enveloped in flashing still when he is prepared to march, and the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets, they rush wildly in the squares, their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles, they stumble in their march, they hurry to her wall, and their mantlet is set up. The gates of the rivers are open. And the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days. Now they are fleeing. Stop. Stop. But no one turns back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. For there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, She is desolate and waste, hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also anguish is in the whole body, and all their faces are grown pale. Where's the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, lioness, and lion's cubs prowled, with nothing to disturb them? The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Father, we thank You for Your Word that You have given us. Lord, we know that Your Word is truth. We know that You sanctify us by Your Word. So Father, I ask that You would do that very thing by Your Holy Spirit, that You would sanctify us through Your Spirit, by Your Word. And Lord, we commit this time to You. We ask You to give us understanding. I ask You to help me in my communication to speak clearly. And may Christ be glorified today. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, I think it's uh, safe to say, I think I, you guys would probably be all in agreement with me that we all like to hear encouraging words, don't we? Do we not? Words of comfort. We all like to hear those kind of words. I don't know many people that are, I will say this, that are in their right mind anyway, who desire to hear a message of doom and destruction. Again, those in their right mind, I don't think, would just want to hear a message like that. But I think that's why many avoid books like maybe Nahum. <laughs> because when you, when you read through it, it's doom and destruction. And Nahum begins in chapter 2 and again in chapter 3 to give detailed description of what the coming judgment, the coming overthrow of Nineveh will look like. He really, he really starts being specific in some of these things. And so, so some may wonder um, how, how, how such a graphic description of a, of a siege, of a destruction, could be edifying or comforting. And, and so, does he really need to be so descriptive, in other words? Listen to what John Calvin said. I, I agree with him on this, and then I'll, I'll expound a little further. He's talking about chapter 2, really in chapter 3, how it gets more descriptive. He said, now this uh, accumulation of words was by no means in vain. For it was necessary to confirm by many words the faith of the Israelites and of the Jews respecting the near approach of the destruction of the city of Nineveh which would have been otherwise incredible. We have to remember how powerful Assyria was. And so the fact that that Assyria was going to be judged and defeated and overthrown would have been hard to believe, and, and so Nahum he gives a description. Remember, last week we talked about, and again I'll, I'll repeat over and over that he is try, Nahum. The name means the comforter or the the, the, uh, the comforter, and so how could this comfort people? Well, it would comfort God's people to know that this powerful enemy of, of, of Judah is uh, that God's going to take care of them. So this would bring great comfort. And so he, he as we go through the text this week and next, you'll see that he gets really, really descriptive of what happens in this uh, overthrow. And so it, it, would, it would bolster the faith of, of the people of God because they again, they were under heavy oppression of Assyria. And so, remember, this book was written some decades before these events were fulfilled completely in 612 BC. And uh, it, 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 uh, so, so these kind of promises, these kind of detailed promises, this is what the Lord's going to do to Assyria, the mighty, really, really thought around around the 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 nation of Israel and other nations that they were invincible. And so to, to read this, that this is what the Lord's going to do, would strengthen their faith, would, would comfort them, would stir up their faith. That, that remember, remember who God is? He told us in chapter 1. He is an avenging God. God is going to take vengeance on Assyria for how they have treated not only the nation of Judah, but other nations. And we'll talk about that more. How violent and how cruel that they were. And so it reminded me of the same promise that that John gives us in Revelation chapter 1. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Chapter 1 verse 3. John tells us, "Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near." And so you guys remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago how Really, and it doesn't really even matter where you fall in your eschatology within the, the four orthodox views that the book of Revelation is meant to comfort God's people. That Christ is going to conquer His enemies. So it's the same principle here. Yahweh will conquer this powerful enemy and, and He's given His promises in detail of what it's going to look like. And so Nahum, the book of Nahum that we're going through, it should encourage and strengthen our faith as well as we read it. Why is that, beloved? Because what did God say in His Word? I, the Lord, do not change. And so we can see how God deals with His enemies. And He told us that in verse verse 2. That God is jealous, that God is avenging, that He takes vengeance on His adversaries. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. The same God that we serve. So that being said, the theme of the of this chapter, if I could sum it up, it's on it's on the back of your outline or on your outline, which is on the back of your bulletin, is this: that the Lord is sovereign and is holy, and His judgment fell on Assyria and will eventually fall on all who remain in their sins. Okay? Because we are dealing, obviously, you guys know this, the same God is the God that we serve as the God who judged Assyria. He is the same God. So first of all, we're going to look at five things today. First of all, in verse number 1, we see a serious defense. A serious defense. says this in verse 1, The one who scatters has come up against you Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. The first thing you guys need to be aware of is that this is sarcastic language that the prophet is using. This is sarcastic language. He's telling Nineveh, man up. Man up. Get ready. Strengthen, strengthen yourselves. Get ready for war. And we know it's sarcastic because... Look back in chapter 1 what he said in verse 9 and verse 12. Look what he said in, chapter, in verse 9. Whatever you devise against the Lord, He's going to make a complete end of it. Verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. So you have the prophet telling, uh, when this is being read to Nineveh, that it, it doesn't matter what you do. You are going to. God is going to destroy you, and He's going to destroy you completely. But now we see. Oh, and also in chapter two, verse ten, we can see the same thing that we'll look at. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate. Speaking about Nineveh, and laid waste. Hearts are melting. Knees are knocking. When when the enemies, when God's servants, Babylon and the Medes invade and take siege of Nineveh. It is a complete destruction. But in verse 1, he's saying, hey, man up, get ready. You have been the one, Nineveh, Assyria, in all of your brutality, and all of your cruelty, that you have afflicted so many, including Israel and Judah, and now you are going to be on the receiving end. That's what's going on here. So summon all your strength. Summon all your strength. Although it's, not, it's going to be to no prevail. That's, that's what the, the prophet is saying. The one, and in verse 1 where it says, the one who scatters, I believe that's talking about the, the armies that came in, Babylon and the Medes and whoever else may have been involved, but ultimately it's talking about who? Yahweh. That's the real enemy of Assyria is Yahweh Himself. So he is coming. He is coming in judgment. Secondly, we see in verse two Judah's deliverance. So remember, the context is Judah, the southern kingdom. So it's some interesting language here in, in verse two. But, but the point is, is it's God delivering Judah. So once again, I, I said this last week, starting in verse nine in chapter one, down through cha, verse two in chapter two, we see a in the language we see there's a there's a switch. In the wording, it'll be, he'll be speaking about judgment on Assyria and then deliverance of, of Judah, of God's people, when you read through that text, down through this verse. And so again, the context, he's speaking about the southern kingdom, um, Judah. So this, this language here, "...for the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their, their vine branches." So this could be interpreted as, as maybe an honorific title for Judah. So, because Jacob was Israel's ancestor and was Judah's father. But we know that the context of this letter is Judah. So what's the point here? That's, that's more what we want to look at. What, what's the point going on here in verse 2? Judah has been devastated, but Yahweh will restore them. Okay? Yahweh is going to restore. Again, like the book of Revelation. We don't want to get lost sometimes in these prophetic books and all of the, the different language, and you, you know, especially when you're in a book with a lot of symbolism. But the point, just like in the book of Revelation, Christ is going to avenge his enemies, those who have persecuted his church. Same thing going on here. He is a covenant-keeping God, is He not? Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God, and we know that Messiah, back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head will come from where? The tribe of Judah. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah. So again, this is good news for Judah. Good news for the people of God and good news for all of God's people down to the ages who have or who will continue to fall under any any type of tyrannical rule of ungodly rulers. When you think of our brothers and sisters in China, for example, suffering severe persecution, the book of Revelation would be a great comfort for them because it's just temporary. It's just temporary. Christ is going to conquer. His enemies will be judged if not in this life, ultimately in the next. He will avenge here or He will avenge in hell. But, but God is an avenging God. So we see God's sovereignty. When you think about God's sovereignty, right here in this text, before we move on to the point number three, we ask the question, why did He not judge Assyria and deliver His people sooner? We could ask that question. Because as we read in Isaiah, I'm going to flip over to Isaiah again and read one verse in that chapter 10 that we looked at. Because they, the Assyrians, were His instrument for disciplining or, or chasing His people for their sin, for idolatry primarily. He is sovereign. Look at verse 12. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to jot it down. Isaiah ten twelve. 12. So, so it will be that when the Lord has completed all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will say... After he's completed his work, he will say, "I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness." So God is sovereign. God is—he uh, sends his people into into exile because of their idolatry, and then he turns around. When he deems the time is necessary, then he turns around and delivers his people and judges that very nation that he raised up. That's how sovereign God is. God is sovereign, but he will deliver Judah. So, thirdly, we see in verses 3 through 6, verses 3 through 6, we see the Lord's divine instrument. Okay? So we know as God is sovereign, but he always has, right? He always has a means to accomplish his will, right? God is sovereign in salvation, is he not? But what what are his means to use? He uses his people to proclaim the gospel. So he is sovereign, but he always has means. We see the same thing here. The Lord's divine instrument. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> the shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is prepared to march, and the cypress spears are brandished. Guys, picture this. This is a well organized army. Advancing for battle, he's describing the Babylonians here, and and we see the uh, and, and we see the it, uh, the second line of that verse. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. This is just their 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 wardrobe what was um, colored red. Listen to what it says in Ezekiel twenty three fourteen, describing Babylon. This is, this is described in the spiritual adultery of Israel and Judah. And it says, when she saw men portrayed on the wall images of the Chaldeans or Babylonians portrayed in with vermilion. That, that means red color. So that's what's going on. They're, they're dressed in red. And, the, and then the first line, it says the shields of His mighty ones are colored red. The, the shields of His <clears throat> mighty ones. This could be... This could be uh, there's a few different possibilities. This could be these spears or these shields could be red from from the blood of the victims of past battles. They, it could be. It could be they could be copper shields with the reflection of the sun. Or, or some kind of red dye on the shields, or it could have been from the fresh blood. Of those who were resisting outside the city walls as the armies came through, because you remember how big we we talked about in in the book of Jonah, how big Nineveh was. It wasn't just inside the walls, but you had picture kind of like suburbs. You know, you, like you have Oklahoma City, and then you would have Midwest City. So you would have suburbs when the armies were coming in that maybe put up resistance as as they were approaching. The walls in Nineveh. So that is what is going on here. But what the what what the picture really is, guys, is it, it again? It portrays a powerful, confident, unified army approaching the walls. It said, "Flashing, flashing steel." The chariots were flashing steel. So maybe these chariots were so strong that they, they couldn't be uh, penetrated. They were covered with steel. The, the picture is, if you were in Nineveh, it would be terrifying. Seeing this, this army coming, carrying these soldiers on chariots with these mighty spears. A frightening sight. That's what Nahum's trying to communicate which again would have comforted God's people. You see what the Lord is going to do? And He's telling you in detail how mighty Assyria is coming down. God is going to deliver you. And so in verse 4, the chariots race madly in the streets, they rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches, they dash to and fro like lightning flashes. This very possibly, and I think it is, the, this activity is still happening outside the walls of Nineveh. Again, those suburban roadways. Uh, o. Palmer Robertson, in his, in his commentary, gives a description of what he thinks is going on, which I, I would agree with. Suburban roadways, he says, and intersections, crisscrossing, on the way the various gates of the city are now fully under occupation. So picture picture the Babylon the Medes coming and they've already got all these intersections under occupation. And I think that's what's going on. Up to this point it's just the siege just coming towards the city. And 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 think of those behind the wall. They're just waiting for the inevitable. They're waiting for the judgment to fall upon Him. They see this massive army in red and, and powerful chariots. It would be like tanks in our day. You just feel, you just feel hopeless. And again, Yahweh is coming. And judgment. You have been the oppressor. You have taken so many nations into captivity. And been so violent and brutal. And now it's being turned on you. So, like we stated earlier, beloved, Nahum is using this graphic description to help strengthen the faith of God's people that the Lord really was going to bring down the once seemingly invincible Assyria. Verse, and then the verse 5 says, He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall and the mantle is set up. Again, the second point we're looking at, we are looking at the Lord's divine instrument here. And so in verse 5, it's uncertain It's uncertain who's being described here. There's two, there's two interpretations. It could be, and this is the view I would hold to, that he's describing the, the head of the Babylonian army when it says, he remembers his nobles and then it says they stumble in their march, they hurry to her wall, and the mantle is set up. So the first possibility it could be speaking about the Babylonian army. Describing those who are on the attack. And the reason I I think that's the view is because down in chapter 3, verse 3, look what it says. This is describing the Babylonian army coming in. It says, "...horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. So it's, so it's describing the, the Babylonian army having to stumble over all of the dead bodies. And then some think, it could, some think it could be the king of Assyria that it's describing when it says he remembers his nobles and he's describing the, uh, the, the Assyrian army, those in defense, meaning meaning that... Meaning, it's, it's picturing this army who's not really up to the task and they're just stumbling around in fear and trepidation. It really doesn't matter. I think it's the first view because the point is the same. We're looking at the Lord's divine instrument. So either way, the, these invading armies who is the Lord's instrument who are going to completely overthrow Nineveh, the point's the same. Right, that Babylon and the Medes—it's—it's it's God's instrument, and the Assyrian army and the those within inside the wall are fearful, and they're being overthrown. That is what's going on here. Yahweh is none real enemy. That's what we—we we don't need to lose sight of that. Babylon is just his instrument, right? But Yahweh is his enemy. Assyria is Yahweh's enemy. And like Nahum said in chapter 1, he reserves wrath for his enemies and he is bringing it now. He is bringing his wrath. But even that's not as bad as his, his, his final wrath. None of this compares to his when a sinner falls into the hands of, a, of an angry God and, he, and, and, and the full wrath of God is poured out. But this is, this is his wrath and judgment. So in verse 6, In verse 6, the gates of the rivers are open and the place is dissolved. We ask the question how much is literal or or metaphoric? The advancing army, again, there's this language in the Bible and other places of advancing armies coming like a flood. So it would be more metaphorical if it's just describing the armies coming like a flood, or possibly the flooding of a river that we talked about last week. Maybe the Tigris River, or the, the Tigris or the Euphrates River that ran close to Nineveh. I think it's both, actually. I think it's describing both. Because armies are described, described elsewhere as like a coming like a flood. And then an individual called Diodorus Siculus, I think is how you pronounce his name, he is an ancient Greek historian, indicates that in the fall of Nineveh, a series of heavy rains swelled the Tigris River and flooded parts of the city and overthrew the wall for a length of about two miles. So I think it's just describing both. The armies came in like a flood and God sent a flood to help them out. So whether rain or whether Babylon to make our, our, our third point, the Lord's divine instrument, whether it's the weather or whether it's Babylon or whether it's both, they're both God's servants. Right? He's sovereign. He's sovereign. He uses the weather and he uses armies to accomplish his purposes. And so that's what we see going on. And fourthly, we see in verse 7-10, through we see the Lord's decree. The Lord's decree. Now in the NAS, the New American Standard, which I'm reading out of, it says this, it starts verse 7 off, It is fixed. And then if you have a New King James, it says it is decreed. And I think I'm saying that right. i think thinking that if you have an ESV, if you have a... Just think of the, most of the translations that our people would maybe have. If you have an ESV, if you have a King James, if you have a CSV, Christian Standard Bible, it, it, just, it doesn't say either. But the point is, I like that the translators put it in here because it's just reminding us that this thing is decreed by God. Like we read in Isaiah a few minutes ago. It's decreed by God. And just by way of reminder, like the uh, 1689 Confession says, just to remind us that we would agree with, Scripture clearly teaches this, in uh, chapter 3, paragraph 1, it says, God has decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, Freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. And so, this is just a reminder, guys. God decreed this. God decreed this, and He's a, He is carrying it out now. So, in verse seven, it says she is stripped, she is carried away, and her handmaids are moaning like the sound of duds, or sound of doves beating on their breasts. Carried away just means carried away into exile. So the 1st subpoint we see under the Lord's decree is that some carried away. Some were carried away into exile. And, and again, what had Assyria been known for? That they had carried so many into exile. And now the tables are turned. And so the she, it could re- refer to the, just the city of Nineveh in general. Um, so the, the, it could be just the city of... Because it's... Cities are called "she." Matter of fact, Nineveh was called "she" in just uh, an above verse that I just read, I believe. But uh, but the point is, it could be talking about just Nineveh in general, possibly the queen of Nineveh, or just female inhabitants. But the point is, is that many are going to be carried off into exile, and, and we see the language at the end of verse seven just expressing much agony. And, and, and heartfelt emotion beating their breast, just symbolizing the, the, the hopelessness of their once glorious city being overtaken. We have to put ourselves in their shoes. This was a major event in world history that this great city is being overthrown. So we've seen some are carried away into exile. This is just describing, right? Describing the overthrow and the destruction of Assyria. Verse 8. Verse 8. The second subpoint. Some, some fled. Nineveh, it says in verse 8, though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. It was like a pool of water. Probably just reflecting her all of her former glory separated in a sense from the rest of the world and and, and thought always to be safe from attack. Who could ever attack and overthrow the great Nineveh, the great Assyria? But now many are overcome by fear and are fleeing the city. Picture this in our minds. Picture this in our minds. Thirdly, we see We see that some are carried away, some fled, and now we see plunder and fear. And there is much plunder. For centuries, beloved, for centuries, Assyria would amass massive amounts of treasures. And how did they get it? From plundering other nations. That's what they were known for. So in verse 9 it says, plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. The kings, you could, you could, I read some history of the different kings of, of, of Assyria and they would boast of all of the things that they had plundered from other nations. And so it was found, carved in stone, some records from some of the Assyrian kings And they said the following here. This is just speaking about some of the things that they have plundered. Chariots supplied with the equipment for men and horses. Numerous talents of silver, gold, lead, copper, iron, brightly colored garments of every fabric, golden bowls, golden beakers, golden goblets, golden pitchers, camels, oxen, elephants, monkeys, apes, ivory couches laid and bejeweled, elephants' hides, lambs, birds, mules, cattle, and sheep. All that they had plundered from other nations. And now Yahweh, almost in a humorous way, is having the armies of Babylon do the exact same thing to them. So think of the massive amounts of plundering on top of all the, the bloodshed, all the plundering that would have taken place. And again, how did Assyria acquire all this? Was it through honest hard work? No, it's through theft, violence, and brutality. This is a wicked nation. This is a wicked nation. And the roles are now reversed. And again, who is, who is their enemy? It's Yahweh Himself. Verse 10. She is empty. Speaking about the plunder still. She is empty. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body and all their faces grown pale. In all of the archaeological discoveries that we talked about last week that have been discovered about Nineveh, no gold or silver has ever been discovered. Thus, what does that do for us? Further confirming this prophecy. That stuff was plundered, taken away. And in verse 10, we see just fear and dread. Can you imagine the fear and dread? As this invincible Assyria has come down. They're paralyzed with fear. Yahweh is coming in judgment. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Yahweh is pouring out His vengeance on Nineveh, the city that had once, 150 years before, repented at the preaching of Jonah and God had shown compassion. But the judgment has come. Judgment day has come for Assyria. Assyria. And then lastly, under the Lord's decree, we see the defeat of the mighty, the defeat of the mighty in, in uh, verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11 and 12 here. Where is the den of the lions and, and, and the feeding place of the young lions? where the lion, the lioness and the lion's cub crowd with nothing to disturb them. The lion tore enough for his cubs. Killed enough for his lionesses and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. What is all the lion talk? We gotta ask ourselves. So when you think about the den of lions and, and the male lion, probably referring to the king of Assyria, the lioness as the queen, the young lions and the cubs as the, the different princes and princesses and other officials who served the king. What's the point? The point is the Assyrians were known. They're being described as as lions. The Assyrians were known to be described as lions of that time. They were known as being not soft and gentle, not kind, not merciful, but fierce. The Assyrians were known for being fierce, powerful, violent, and they acted with brutality. Here's another reminder, guys. We've talked about a few of these things. I think in the introduction to to Jonah and last week in this book, because we're dealing with Nineveh. This again, from some of the uh, records, from some of the king's own words, these are some of the things that the kings of Assyria, that it's recorded that they would boast about. I just wrote down a few. And this gives us a picture of, of why God is so angry At this nation, and why God brings judgment on this nation. So we talked about that the kings they would boast about filleting their victims. Guys, you're a fillet of fish. We fillet fish usually when they're already dead, right? Catch them, and not always, but but think of a human being. These people were being filleted while they were alive. The brutality of this. I think I said that wrong. I don't think you always flay fish when they're dead, but but, but think you think of flaying a human being while they're alive? Beheading them? Again, the kings, it's it's recorded that they they would boast of these things. Gouging their eyes out. All of this is while they're living. They would suspend their corpses from the poles. This is just it's disgusting, it's brutality, it's satanic. They would place their skins on the city walls. Things that you would do with big game, you know, to show off your your big game that you that you would kill, that you would hunt. They did it with with people that they would take in captivity and, and kill these people. They would cut off their lips. And much, much more was recorded. So Nahum. What, 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 again, what is he doing? He is mocking the once powerful Assyrian. He is he is mocking the, the supposed strength of Nineveh. Now, they were strong, but compared to Yahweh, remember Psalm 2? The nations rage, and Yahweh laughs. That's what's going on here. He laughs. The, the question in verse 11, where is the den of the lions? Hey, where's all the the mighty, powerful lions Act. And in verse 12, the lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his, his lioness, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Not only was the kings of Assyria brutal and blood-craving like a lion, but through all of the plundering through all of the all of the plundering, the, the king provided just like a just like a male lion would kill his prey and would eat, but then would drag the carcass to his, to his clan, to his den. The king, through all of the plundering, had provided for his clan in the same way, but the day has come. The day has come. The prophet Nahum is letting them know that their day has come that God, that Yahweh, right? He will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Remember the verse I read last week, guys? I think it was in Zephaniah where basically you had the city of Nineveh saying (laughs) the most blasphemous language you could use that there is no one besides me. (laughs) The same language that Yahweh used Nineveh used of themselves and they are being brought down. Judgment is coming. It's coming. And so in verse 13, our last and final point, we see the Lord's declaration. In verse 13, so the Lord here, guys, Yahweh Himself is the speaker here in verse 13. And He says these most frightening words. That behold, I am against you. Words that you would not want to hear. Words that are true for multitudes, and they're not they don't even know it. That the Lord is against them. But that's what he says here. So let's we'll come back to that in just a moment. Look down in that verse. It says, I will burn up your chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young children lions and i will cut off your prey from the land i will burn up your chariots in smoke all of your strength right that's what nahum was giving us a picture picture of through all of their plundering they had all of the strength all of the power that they were trusting in right We're going to read another section here in a minute out of 2 Kings. You'll just see the the arrogance of Assyria. The arrogance of the king. The arrogance of the nation. All of this power that they thought they had. And God is saying, I'm going to destroy all of it. Babylon is simply, unknowingly, my servant carrying out my judgment. But I'm the one who's bringing you down. A sword will devour your young lions. You have made a living, Assyria, of devouring others, and there's not going to be any future left for you. Because I am against you. I am against you. He says it again in chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And no longer, at the, at the end of verse 13, look at this. No longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. I want to give you an example of what he's talking about. Turn to 2 Kings. This may be familiar with some of you. In 2 Kings, chapter 18. And you can see the, just the pomp and the arrogance of Assyria. Of the king. They would send out messengers. So we're going to see an example of it. And God says, no more. No more. So, 2 Kings 18. And I think we'll read verses 28-35. through I think that paints the picture enough. You'll be able to see exactly what the Lord is saying in Nahum. I'll give you just a moment here. 2 Kings 18 28 through 35 So let me read that again in Nahum. He says, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. We're going to we're going to see an example of one of these messengers of Assyria. 2nd Kings 18 28 through 35. So the messenger in verse 28, Rabshakeh Rabshakeh "...stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean, saying, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria." So he's speaking to Judah, okay? The king had sent him to speak to Judah. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah, who Hezekiah is the king of Judah at that time, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. So this message is coming from the king of Assyria through his messenger." Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and each of And eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the water of his his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the King of Syria. Where are the gods of Hamath and, and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephavrim, Hana, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the land have delivered their land from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Do you see? Do you see the arrogance? Now God did use Assyria God did use Assyria to judge Judah for a period of time, but he is coming in judgment now for the cruel nation of Assyria. And he said, No longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. What's going to be heard instead? Chapter 1, verse 15 Behold on the mountains the feet of him who bring good news. Yahweh has destroyed, is going to destroy Assyria. But your messengers, O king, no more. And so what does all this tell us, remind us, guys, in chapter 1, that God is a jealous God, is He not? The king of Assyria was not willing to share His glory with Yahweh. And God is a jealous God. And like we talked about last week, His vengeance eventually flows out of His jealousy. He will share His glory with no other. And He's no different nowadays. In other words, find comfort. Judah, Yahweh is going to take vengeance on your enemies. That carries us through chapter 2. And so what, what does all of this remind us of? That no enemy of God No enemy of God, whether it's a nation or whether it's an individual. And you remember what I told you last week when we started the book, that if you're not in Christ, you're an enemy of God. That's what the Bible says. All of those outside of Christ are at enmity with God. And no enemy of God will stand in the end. Why? Because He reserves wrath for His enemies. He reserves wrath for His enemies. Listen to Romans 8.31. If, or better translated in the Greek, since, since God is for us, who is against us? Since God is for us, who is against us? I think I told you guys a story that I had an atheist by the name of Jake one time tell me, you know, it's rather humorous to see an atheist try to interpret Scripture. And he says, yeah, Scripture's so goofy it doesn't make sense. He read that and he said, I'm against you. But that's not what it means. That's not what it means. In the words of, in the words of commentator Robert Haldane, if God be for us, nothing can be so against us as finally to do us injury. In other words, since God is for us, As his people, those who are in Christ, nobody can successfully be against us in the end. That's what that means. So, no one can ultimately successfully be against you if you're in Christ. The devil may want to be, but in the end, he's going to lose. He's already been defeated at the cross. Because as those, as the people of God, as those who are now born again, as those who were once lost and in our sins, who was our biggest enemy when we were in our sins? God was our biggest enemy. We were in enmity with God, whether we realized it or not. And those who are not in Christ, God, Yahweh, the same God who who, who told Assyria, I am against you, says the same thing to those who are not in Christ. I am against you. It has been appointed for a man once to die, and after that the judgment, and then you will fall into the hands of this living God if you're not in Christ. God was our biggest, sinners, our, our biggest enemy. What did Paul, how did he describe those? who were outside of Christ, children of wrath in Ephesians 2. Children of wrath. John the Baptist in John chapter 3. You remember what he said. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And sinners have no idea the danger they're in. That the wrath of God, all of this language in Nahum, all of this language in Nahum, that He is wrathful, that He is avenging, He is powerful, He's jealous, all of this language. And they would say, well, yeah, that's Old Testament. No, the wrath of God is upon you if you're not in Christ. Christ. It remains on you. That means His anger remains on a person. And He is slow to anger. He's patient. He's kind. The kindness of God is meant to lead people to repentance. So when we're not in Christ, that was true of us. God was our biggest enemy. But what happened? What happened, guys? Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God. Amen? But God. Because He is rich in mercy, He caused us to be born again. Amen? By grace we have been saved. God reconciled us. That word reconciled is so important with this language. God reconciled. What happens when you're reconciled? You're at enmity with somebody. And God in His grace, He reconciled us to Himself through Christ and what He do? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we can go tell other enemies. Be reconciled to God. Judgment doesn't have to fall on you. So we're no longer enemies of God. But since we have been justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we now have peace with God. Amen? Amen. We have peace with God. We're no longer enemies. No longer the wrath no longer abides upon us. But we have been justified, declared righteous through faith. This peace was made possible through the blood of the cross, amen? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Raised for our justification. So our sin, right? All of our sin. Our our enmity with God on the cross was laid upon Christ and He bore that wrath. He bore it in full on the cross where He made propitiation for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God and turning the anger of God away from us forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. No longer enemies of God. So the question for you today, The question for all of us today, the question for anybody who would hear this message today, this is not just true of Assyria. So the question for you today is the title of the message, Is the Lord Against You? One of the greatest questions we could ever ask. Is the Lord against you? Is the Lord against me? Or is He for me because I have taken refuge in His Son, Kiss the Son, lest to be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are those who take refuge in Him. If the Holy Spirit has showed you that you, that, that, that Yahweh is against you, that you are still in your sins, then the command is always, as always, repent and believe in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to the only one who you can take refuge in Him, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave up His life on that tree, on that cross and conquered death, hell, and the grave through His resurrection and bids you to come to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, the book of Nahum, Lord, we, thousands of years later, as your people, are reminded of who you are, that you are a jealous God, you are the only one who deserves worship, who is worthy of worship, and you are a holy God, as we say, You must and will punish all sin because of Your holiness. But You provided a Savior. And You punished Him in our place, Father. We thank You. We thank You, Lord, that we as Your people adopted it in Your family through faith in Christ alone, by Your grace alone, for His glory alone. We can sing to You now, Lord. We can sing to You because You have reconciled us to Yourself in Christ. And so Father, we just want to sing this song to You in response of what we've read, Lord, that all of this is possible because of Christ alone. Father, we love You, we praise You, and we thank You. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.